Happy Resurrection Sunday, everybody. And we're celebrating this morning the new life that Jesus brings. We're actually kicking off a mini two-week series called His Desire, Our Desire. And really, as we're looking at the Easter story to this morning, I want to look not just at what the what, but the why behind the what. Looking at the heart of God, His, his desire in, in the Easter story, in coming, in living, and dying. Many of you are too young, most of you are too young to remember when the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out back in the early 2000s. But passion, passion is a word that speaks to us of, of desire, of heart. Um, but another, but there are a lot of apart, different definitions of passion. Um, one definition that that movie was based on is that it's the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last, suf- of the last Supper and his death. Um, but it also, so it speaks specifically to, to that suffering, deep, strong, uh, personal experience of his, but also we, you know, we're familiar with these meanings of emotion, ardent affection, strong liking or desire, or an object of deep desire or interest. And God, God wants us to know that he has passion. He's a passionate God. In Acts 2.24, Peter was preaching the initial message of the new church. And he said this, he's speaking about the resurrection. He said, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now there was something in the heart of Jesus, in the heart of God, and I mean, this, there's a mystery beyond our comprehension, but there's like wild horses couldn't keep him down. Like there was something like so, the heart of God, that it was impossible for death to keep that back. And we know what this is like with things that we're passionate about, right? I, my son Ian here, he loves music. And I don't have to, like, tell him, hey, Ian, can you, like, go down to the basement and just, like, listen to music for an hour? Like, no, he just, like, wants to do that every day. When he was, like, two years old, he would walk up to the piano and put his hands up and start, like, picking out little melodies. It was just crazy. And then he, he started learning piano, and he just... You know, now it's like he goes to bed, or, the, or his, it's nighttime, and his little sister goes to bed, and he gets on the piano and starts just making up songs and symphonies, and I'm like, that sounds great, but not right now. <laughs> Your sister's trying to sleep. But when I was a kid, I took piano lessons for several years, and, you know, I kind of liked music, but it wasn't like that. It was more like, I was supposed to practice 30 minutes a day, and it was a continual battle between me and my mom of getting nagged to practice piano. I remember... Plenty of weeks where my lesson was the next day, and I hadn't practiced yet. And it was like, oh, great, now i got three hours I'm supposed to practice. This is, this is like, you know, just going, there's, it wasn't in my heart like that. And I think we all know what it's like to, to be trying to do things that we're not really into. Whether it's chores, or our jobs, or schoolwork, or our faith sometimes. And I think um, sometimes we have this idea that God is... Just in our heart, we kind of feel like God's like that. That like, yeah, you know, you, you went, and you, you died on the cross, and you rose again, but that's kind of like because you had to. It's like, oh, these stupid humans messed up again. I guess I got to go die for them and rise again. I guess, you know, 
I guess I got to do it. But no, when we look, when we get the heart of God, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't grudgingly, but it was passionately. And um, in Hebrews 12, 2, this is, we're just going to really have two main verses this morning. Two pretty short passages, short scriptures. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It wasn't that Jesus, like, you know, he felt the agony of the cross, and he even prayed, God, can I, is there any way around this? But, you know, it was, if you think about the greatest, you know, I'll tell my kids' stories today, but a couple nights ago, Cade, he's driving back into town. I called him, hey, can you stop at Dylan's on the way? Get a few things? He's like, sure. He pulls off the little exit ramp on Seth Child and rear-ends a car. <laughs> and so, yeah, so... And then he's, so he's, he's handling it really well. But you got, when you've done, made a mistake like that, you know all the emotion of like regret. And oh man, I wish I could go and take that back. And you know, Jesus, if you think about it, more serious, like our greatest, greatest failures and our greatest sins, the shame and the weight of guilt and heaviness that comes with that. That Jesus, he had all of that come upon him at the cross. The whole sin of the world came upon him was placed upon him. And he could even sense that ahead of time, going into it, that that was what was coming on him. But there was a great, so that was, you know, great dread, if you can imagine, the dread of that weight of the sin of the world coming upon him. But there was an even greater motivation, which was the joy that was set before him. There was a sense of, you know, this, this, there's something joyous that is coming about through what I'm doing here. Something like, I, I can't be stopped, because there's a joy. I, a couple months ago, I was just looking back through my, my journal and my notes, and I wrote down something that, as I was processing some really big loss in my own life, I heard the Lord speak to me, and he said, I wrote this down, he said, I have more joy for you in the second half of your life than you've experienced in the first half of your life. And that was so powerful, it was like, man, I've had a lot of joy in the first half of my life, but you've got even more for me. And that's, that, there's a power of knowing the, the joyous life that God wants to bring us. And that's what God has, and that's what he, he lived with, and that's what brought him through the cross and through the, through the resurrection. I, one of my favorite family stories isn't about any of my kids, but it's about my grandparents. And when, um, during World War II, my grandpa Hup joined the Navy, better that than get drafted, and was mostly in the Pacific during the war. And, but at one, and so he, he had just started dating my grandmother. They both they were in Topeka. They went to Topeka High School. They, before he got shipped off, they got married. It was, I believe it was her 19th birthday, and he turned 20 the next day. So they were a young couple. So they got married, and then he went off to, they got, went to boot camp. But at one point in the middle of the war, a couple years later, he was, a, his station was in Chicago at Navy Pier. And so my grandmother's in Topeka, he's in Chicago. And Thanksgiving came, and kind of last minute, they gave his, his group 48 hours of leave. So they had two days off. And so what does he think? 
What does he decide to do with those 48 hours? Well, he wants to see his young bride. He wants to see my grandmother. And, you know, now to drive from Topeka to to Chicago, it's a good 10 hours with interstates and, you know, everything. But then there were no interstates. He didn't have a car. But he was just like, I'm going to see my wife. And he hitchhiked. He just, like, got out, started bumming rides, catching rides, made it to Topeka at night, spent the night, and then hitchhiked back the next day. Because of that joy and that anticipation, that motivation to see his wife. Now, what's wild is that that was the night my dad was conceived. (laughs) Crazy. When I heard that story, I thought, I'm glad my grandpa had that anticipation and that joy. Because I always felt like, those of you who are old enough who saw Back to the Future, I felt like that scene where he sees the picture of, his, of the kids like fading off of the photo because his parents didn't get together. It was like, oh my goodness, if that didn't happen, I'm not here. Like, there was that like, joyous anticipation. Brought, my very life is dependent upon that. And even more so, like Jesus' passion for us, his passion to restore things, is what brought new life to us into the world. Most famous scripture in all the Bible, John 3.16, we're going to look at it. Starting a couple of verses earlier, John 3.14. Jesus is speaking, he says, So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. And we've, we've heard these words so many times. You know, they, it can lose its, its weight and its meaning. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world. Think about that. that. I mean, I remember the first time my wife told me that she loved me. Just the weight, the, the preciousness of those words. Like, oh my goodness, Reagan just told me she loves me. Wow, that's incredible. It wasn't, I told her on our first date, that's another story. A little crazy, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't wait. But it was a little bit later, she told me, and I was just like, wow, it's amazing. And that was amazing, but so much more. God so loved us, and God so loved the world. God so loved the created order. He's, it's not out of grudginess. It's not out of, oh, i got to do that. They, they messed up. But no, I so love the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we see in that a lot. We see that the motivation of God is love. It's passion. It's desire. It's God so loved us. He so loved the world that created order. But that is the force behind his actions toward us, and especially his death and resurrection. And so that's the why behind the what is his love. And then it's also... He so loved us that he wanted to bring us eternal life. And eternal life is another one of those phrases that you hear, and so often we don't really have a full, a very good comprehension of what that means. And actually, just this past week, our friends over at the Bible Project just released a new little video talking about this phrase, eternal life, this term eternal life. And I think they did a great job, so I thought, we're just going to show that this morning. So let's watch this little video here. Um, just to see the life look. unto the age. The, the, what the age is this talking about? Oh, okay, so in the beginning, 
Life unto the age. What age is this talking about? Okay. So in the beginning of the biblical story, humans are made from the dust of the ground. This is a common biblical image for creatures that are mortal. That is, they live in an age where they could die. But God takes humanity and places them in a sacred garden where they're invited to experience a new and deeper kind of life. By eating from the tree of life. Yeah, we're told it offers them life unto the age, a life of infinite potential because it connects them to God's own divine life. But the story takes a turn. And instead of accepting life unto the age, they eat of the tree of knowing good and bad. Right. Taking from this tree means seizing life for themselves on their own terms, apart from God's wisdom. And so they're exiled from life unto the age, and they go into the age of death. They mistreat each other. They do what's right in their own eyes. Things get really violent. Exactly. And so the whole rest of the story of the Bible can be thought of as a choice between two different ages. The age of life on our own terms that leads to death, or the age of God's own life. And while humanity has rejected God's life, God promises he'll open the way back. Exactly. And it's that promise that ultimately leads the story to Jesus. He's presented as God's own life become human so that both ages overlap in him. He lives in the age of mortality and death and in the age of eternal life at the same time. And so he can offer people access to life and to the age. Right. It's like what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yet, just like humanity rejected God's life in the garden, Jesus was rejected and put to death. But God's life is more powerful than death. And so Jesus rises from the dead, and he can offer God's life to others. Like the Gospel of John also says, Whoever trusts in him will not perish, but has eternal life. That is, life unto the age. Cool. Now, most people think of eternal life as something that happens after you die. But in the Bible, access to this age is something I can have right now. Yeah, remember, Jesus was the place where the age of God's life meets the age of death. And that means that when people trust him, they can experience eternal life here and now. But we also still live in the age of death. So what happens when I die? Well, just like death couldn't overpower God's eternal life in Jesus, similarly, we can remain alive to God even if we're physically dead. In the Bible, this is called being with Christ. And it's not talked about very much because it's not how the overall biblical story ends. The focus of the Bible is about when the age of life completely overcomes the age of death. And those who are with Christ are recreated to share in God's eternal life. A world where the age of death no longer has any power. Exactly. Because life that is fully connected to God's own eternal life and love is a life that will never end. Yeah, <clears throat> love that video, and I love what it brings. You know, that understanding of eternal life isn't just something that happens to us after we die and we get to float in the cloud somewhere, but this life unto the age, this quality of life that God made us and the earth to be in through Jesus' resurrection, it's made available to us. It's a quality of life that starts here, 
and it's even as the, the passage in Isaiah that Anna read, you know, it's, it's what God wants to progressively bring more and more and is bringing, that is changing the world in dynamic ways, in ways it's hard to, you know, first even grasp. But as people continue to trust in him and follow him, it's continuing to change the very fabric of the world around us. And so, you know, imagery like the lion and the lamb lying together and, you know, lions eating, eating grass. And like, wow, this is like the very nature of the world changes as this life as this life comes. Um, so, what's our response to this? What's, what's our response? John, back in, in the John 3.16 passage, it's so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, may have life into the age. Whoever believes in him. It's available, but it's not experienced by everybody. It's experienced by those who believe in him. And I love how the Bible, it never, it always talks about belief in the present tense. It's not future and it's not past. It's not whoever believed at one point, but it's this present life of believing, this life of putting our faith in Jesus. And so our response is to believe in him. And that believing involves the facts. It it involves acknowledging and believing the facts that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, he rose again, he's the Messiah, and he's brought his kingdom. It's, it's believing who he is. It's putting our trust in him and not ourself. It's saying, you know, I can't make this life happen through my own efforts, but you brought it about, and by putting my trust in you, I can experience it. And then that produces a, a loyalty. That produces a devotion that when we receive, when we know who God is, it changes our actions. And it changes, it changes our lifestyle. So we got to, our, our response is to believe in who Jesus is. And, you know, that's, that's not making a decision for Christ, but it's making every decision for Christ. It's, okay, you're the Lord. I'm living for you now because of who you are. And so we believe, and then our response is to receive, to receive this gift that God has for us. Jesus said, it's recorded in Luke 12, 32, Don't fear, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is a gift. This is something that's given to us. The kingdom is that experience of eternal life coming into the world and coming wherever it comes. It's God wants to give us the kingdom. He wants to make us reign with him and come into this life with him. And so he wants to give it to us. And so it's this attitude like, this little flock, just receive it. God wants to give it to us as we trust in him, as we believe it. And we, as we receive it. So it's funny that like, receiving isn't natural for a lot of us. Like We kind of want to earn. We kind of want to prove. But the mystery of God's interaction with us is it's like, no, here, I've done it. Trust me. Receive it. And we come into that. And so then we can be like fun little cartoon characters like this video. We can just be like, you know, I got something. I got a gift from God. He cares about me. He changed my life. And now we get to go out into the world. We get to go out into our relationships, to our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, and just bring that same life. That, you know, I was a knucklehead. I was stuck in my sin. I was stuck in my pride. But Jesus brought me his life. He's got it for you too. And that's really what we're, what we're all about. We're a community of people that are experiencing that life and bringing it to people around us.
So, happy Easter, everybody. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. God's passion is for us, and it's to bring us this life unto the age. So let's go ahead. Let's stand up again. We're going to worship God with one more song this morning. And worship team, you can come on back up. Your Eddie's up. Yeah. Good. I'll, I'll pray for us, too, as, as they come up here. Lord, we, we thank you so much.